everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, we're continuing The Mark of Athena. How are you doing today, Jane? Uh, I'm doing good. I've just realized I need to I need to walk to the other side of my room and get a little a model Star Trek spaceship off the shelf. Because it's Ooh. got no moving parts, so I can just play with it while recording it. It doesn't cause you headaches. One of your twenty-seven moving, one of your twenty-seven little model starship. I got so many of these fucking things. You you can't tell the entire story on here, but can you give a truncated version of what happened? Okay, so basically, um, I I sometimes commit the the horrible mistake of going on Facebook Marketplace, and I decided while I was on Facebook Marketplace that I wanted a little uh, eagle moss model of the uh, USS Discovery from Star Trek Discovery. So I typed uh, USS Discovery into Facebook Marketplace, uh, saw a listing that said, hey, I'm selling a bunch of these, including the Discovery, for £40, uh, so buy them off me, please. And I thought, hell yeah, that's cheaper than most people sell it for on its own, I'll just buy this. I did not realise that the person who was selling these was selling, like, 50 of these fucking things. Uh-huh. My entire room is now full of, like... B-list ships that appear in the background of one shot in Star Trek Discovery and then get blown up by the Klingons. Yeah, like, they have, like, the one... What are they called? The elves? Yeah, the Vul- I've got a fucking Vulcan science ship in here. Yeah, yeah, they have, a, they have a Vulcan ship, which nobody knows or cares about. I've got a Vulcan ship. I've got the fucking... The USS Baran, which never appears on screen. It's just... It's the ship that the, the first captain of Discovery originally served on. Like, it's never even on screen, but they made a model of it, and I own that model now. And, you know, it's things like that that make me really glad to be friends with you, because you you are <laughs> a, a true, a true like, independent soul. You will do, you will just buy things. Thank you. Listen, th- this is, this is the, the, the boon of Facebook Marketplace, is that if you want something reputable and you want to, like, pay money and make sure it shows up at your door, you go on eBay. Uh, if you want to go on basically a flea market where nobody knows the value of the shit they're selling, uh, Facebook Marketplace is the place to be. Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> anyway, I'm, I'm playing with a little uh, uh, USS Enterprise D today. Beautiful. Uh, how are you today, Jacqueline? You know, I am doing pretty good. I, as you can tell, maybe as the listener can tell, I'm not in my normal habitat. I am in a a slightly uh, uh, this might recall an olden days of unwise girls <laughs> actually was there ever, was there ever an age of unwise girls where i wasn't using my blue snowball i think no i think you've had the blue snowball from the start well imagine like a prehistoric unwise girls uh, <laughs> th- this is what that this is uh because i i don't have my microphone with me today i'm out of out of the state i'm across the country and i am i'm, I'm recording anyway because i'm a dedicated pos- podcaster Damn right you are. You're you're a hero for bringing the people their uh, Percy Jackson book coverage. That's right. Now, speaking of book coverage, would you like to cover what happens in these chapters? I would like to do that. Chapter 29, Percy. Percy is feeling down in the dumps on account of the Argo 2 dealing with a bunch of ocean-related disasters that he probably should have done something about, and also Annabeth being weird and withdrawn about the Mark of Athena thing. He makes the horrible mistake of lying down to try and clear his head, at which point he has his trademark demigod nightmares. 
The giant twins, Ephialtus and Otis, are chatting with a woman who's clearly Arachne, and telling her that she can kick Annabeth's head in when she arrives at her lair in the statue chamber, but not kill her, because Gaia wants to use her blood to resurrect herself, along with Perseus, ideally, since she needs a male and female demigod. Percy is jolted out of his horrific dream by Jason telling him it's his turn to take watch, so he hangs out on the deck with Annabeth and tells her more about his terrible dream. Annabeth tells him to keep it to himself, since freaking out the other kids more about her solo quest will just make it harder for her to leave. Percy is in the camp of fuck the quest because he's worried about losing Annabeth again, but eventually reluctantly agrees. Just as the chat wraps up, the Argo 2 is rammed and then boarded by a pirate ship, crewed by weird dolphin guys, and their captain... Chryseor who quickly subdue the seven demigods. Chapter 30, Percy. Chryseor is not a dolphin man, but is in fact a demigod, the son of Poseidon and Medusa, bitter at being largely forgotten in legends despite his incredible swordsmanship, and has therefore taken up piracy. He also wants revenge against Percy and Annabeth for killing his mother all the way back in Book 1. He explains that his crew of weird dolphin people were cursed when they kidnapped the wrong person millennia ago, but are now the terror of the Mare Nostrum slash Mediterranean Sea. Percy tries to sword fight him and gets his ass beat. Chapter 31, Percy. Being a manly sword swinging hero didn't work, so Percy resorts to his bread and butter of winning fights by being a sneaky little fucker. He remembers that he's run into someone who has threatened to turn him into a dolphin before, Dionysus in the early PGO books. Percy takes a swing and declares that the god of wine is actually the ship's captain, banking on the possibility that Mr. D was also the guy who cursed the dolphin pirates. It turns out that he was right, and hearing this freaks out the dolphin men. Then the freaking out turns into a full-blown panic and retreat when Frank shapeshifts into a dolphin and flops about on the deck, convincing the dolphin men that Dionysus is back to finish the job. Without his crew, it's 7v1 against Chryseor, and it turns out there's no way to expertly sword fight an 800-pound bear swiping you so hard you do a somersault over the guardrail, which is precisely what Frank does to him. The kids check out the deserted pirate ship and find about $6 million worth of treasure, which they sink into the ocean by flooding the ship with Diet Coke as an offering to Dionysus. After the fight, Percy goes to have another lie down, has imposter syndrome for a while, and then passes out, having a nightmare about Gaia turning Camp Blood into a radioactive smear on her otherwise perfect and empty world. Percy wakes up again, just in time for the Argo 2 to arrive in Rome. Once they land, the kids split up. Hazel, Leona, deeply unhappy Frank go off to try and track down Nico. Piper and Jason stay with the ship while Piper scans for him with on Catoptris the Doomscroll knife, and Percy insists on escorting Annabeth to the starting point for her solo quest. Chapter 32, Percy. Percy and Annabeth stop in a cafe for lunch before she goes to the River Tiber to begin the Mark of Athena quest properly. Again, Percy freaks out a bit about how he kind of wants to just tell the face of the world to go fuck itself so she can be safe, and while Annabeth sympathises, she tells him she has no choice in the matter. At this point, Rhea Sylvia, the mother of Romulus and Remus, and Tiberinus, god of the River Tiber, rock up, looking like Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck for reasons which presently escape me. They say they're here to take Annabeth to her execution, um, quest, and she heads off with them, leaving Percy alone. So, what did you think of these chapters? I thought these ones were pretty good. Yeah, same. I, I feel like, as as ever, the rule from the son of, the son of Neptune holds true. Uh, Percy chapters do tend to be bangers. Yeah, it's because, like, we, we talked about the reasons why this is true a million times, right? Like, we, we know Percy the longest, we understand where he's coming from constantly, and he is he, he's like a he's a he's a good protagonist he's been established and he's a good, good protagonist he's a good protagonist and i will especially never get tired of him like winning by doing his stupid little antics 
Yeah, especially because this is like him growing in a way. Like this is him doing a silly little antic and sort of a clever little move, uh, specifically by accessing something that he usually doesn't. Like he is, he's taking on that Annabeth position of like, ooh, here's some mythological knowledge that you don't necessarily know. That is, I, I guess that's kind of true. I, I don't know the degree to which he's being like, ah, this is my uh, Greek knowledge which I've accrued over the years. And wait, did I remember being threatened for being an asshole by someone else in the exact same way? That's true. That, that, like, he <laughs> he has his own unique flavor to it, right? Yeah, but I, I get what you mean. Like he also, um, I think twigs. Um, he he remembers Cersei at the very least. But I think you are right. Putting putting those pieces together in that way is something that typically Annabeth does, and it's nice to see Percy growing into that. Absolutely, yeah. I, I this entire thing of like uh, the Chrysaor attack. First of all, Chrysaor, the Golden Sword. That's just like badass, right? That's cool. Oh yeah, no, like the idea that he is like the first hero to use imperial gold weaponry to the point where he just calls it enchanted gold because the Roman Empire wasn't around to name it imperial. Yeah, yeah. He has this sick like helmet that is like shaped like a gorgon head, and uh he is he's just like a cool pirate and we haven't had a lot of like the the last time we saw like a cool a pirate it was like literally blackbeard i think it was literally blackbeard which does kind of reinforce that we are once again in uh, sea of monsters 3 <laughs> yeah no we're this is sea of monsters the sequel expanded edition Cersei like, even gets name checks yeah yeah basically <laughs> the, it's weird how for a book that we hated so much that we like unequivocally thought about as the weakest of the series, mm-hmm. the Sea of Monsters is the book that is constantly getting like re-explored. Like the ideas of it are constantly coming up again. I mean, that might just be because that book had some okay ideas and explored them quite badly. <laughs> so I guess Rick might be sneakily recycling some of them. That's true. I wonder also to what extent it's like when you make when you make a sequel. What you're doing is redefining or like for like what you're doing is defining the edges of like what you created previously and what you want to continue to explore from it. So like certain ideas from Lightning Thief were to- were like not tossed away entirely in Sea of Monsters, but slowly got shuffled out. Like mm-hmm. I know there was something that we were talking about with like uh like just like a, a lot of the encounters with humanity kind of started to get like like lesser and lesser um there was there's something that we talked about a few like episodes ago that which like hasn't come up since lightning thief i don't quite remember oh, it, what was it was fucking um like the idea of names having power like that's why dionysus is called mr d yeah things like that like those were largely absent from sea of monsters and i think the reason that's true and the reason that we think of sea of monsters as kind of like a book that we keep coming back to is because it is a it is that first sequel right yeah, exactly. Also, boat. Also, we just like to go on boats in this series for some reason. <laughs> it, it it genuinely saddens me that we're never going to get uh, Princess Andromeda versus the Argo two. That would be so- oh, but what if what if I mean Luke will not come back, right? Luke will not be coming back. But I'm, what if I will Luke not be baited back? again? <laughs> what if like the remnants of Kronos's army like found the Princess Andromeda and like 
They were just, they weren't like the evil villains, but they were like a rogue faction going around. Wouldn't that be kind of cool? Oh, and it's like, it's like ghost ship Princess Andromeda. Like it's still blown up. It doesn't look like it should be sailing, but it, it still is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like the only place they could hide from Camp Half-Blood is, is in the Marionostrum. <laughs> God, that would rule. We should write these books. We should write these books. We may as well be Rick Riordan. Rick Riordan, sell us the rights to these. I think he'd be fine with that, probably. (laughs) He can keep the TV rights. That's what he'll make all the money off anyway. Yeah, yeah. And this entire the way this entire fight goes, like the fact that Percy's sword skills have deteriorated is really good. Like that is that's sort of indicative of like something that we we just haven't seen. That's just like true. Like we have not seen him do straight up sword fighting in a long time. Yeah, he's usually either like batting down like um just like goons who do not even like are not even on the same power level as him so it doesn't matter uh or it's kind of like it's like when he's fighting hyperion in last olympian where it's like if he gets tagged by the sword a few times it's not gonna matter that's the thing right even if he uses his sword in battle which he does do like if you're going up against like a giant for instance you're not using a sword the way you're using a sword in a duel. Mm-hmm. You're using you're using a sword like a knife. You're using a sword to stab and like pinpoint weak spots. That's like that's very different from a sword fight traditionally. I do I do think it is a perfect representation of uh, Percy's ADHD that he practiced this for a couple of weeks a few years ago. Decided he was basically fine at it, uh, and then forgot to ever give himself a refresher on it. <laughs> Yeah, that's the thing, right? This is part of <laughs> Percy's problem about being like he 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 thinks he's Mr. Ocean Man a little bit, right? <laughs> and going with that, uh he's like, yeah, I was I used to be really good at swords. I I'm, I'm still good at swords, right? I don't have to like I don't have to practice. Yeah. God, and it's the move the move from he tries he tries to do the swashbuckling hero thing to the okay, guess I guess I'm back to being a sneaky shit bag. It's so good. It's very good. There might also be a read here about like how Percy's sword fighting skills sort of represented like the relationship between like it kind of stood for the relationship with him and Luke. Mm-hmm. Like in a lot like in a lot of ways his sword fighting skills are inextricably tied to Luke as a character and now that Luke is like removed from the narrative his sword fighting isn't quite as important. Because famously, he he has a sword duel with Luke in our favorite book, The Sea of Monsters, which we can't stop bringing that, up. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Wait, doesn't he have a? Does that happen in The Sea of Monsters? I thought that was in the End of Lightning Thief. Uh, no, End of Lightning Thief. He duels Mars. No, f- f- fucking Roman shit. Ares. <laughs> uh, at the end of Sea of Monsters, he duels Luke, and Luke kicks his ass, and then the party ponies come in and save him right okay because he doesn't really even duel luke at the end of lightning thief luke like they have a very quick sword fight and then luke like throws him into a pit of scorpions luke yeah luke six a fucking scorpion on him okay yes i i remember all of this <laughs> good pretty pretty good book uh yeah i another you're right though that this this dionysus trick it's it's the classic Percy Jackson thing, but also we're kind of seeing it for the first time with this larger crew. Like he is, he doesn't just have like Annabeth smarts, Grover's whatever uh, to rely on. He Grover's now he presence. has, 
Grover's presence, the the satyr's trick. He doesn't have this. Uh, instead, he has like a whole crew, all of which he is uh, sort of trying to learn to use to his advantage. And like their whole their their advantage as a party. But the fact that he is like, oh, if I do this plan, I know that Frank's got me on this. Like that's that's Percy Jackson to like to a T. He he is reliant on his friends and he cares about them more than anything. And this is kind of like, oh, he he is accepting them as his friends, as his crew. Yeah, and at the same time I think there is like there is like you were talking about before, there's a dimension of like growth to Percy here where this is like this is the most that he's taken a lead on something like this before. Like if you compare this to like um the way he uh, manipulated Procrustes into letting him kill him in Lightning Thief. He basically had to hang Annabeth and Grover out to dry while he like got himself into position to do that. Uh, whereas here he is like, he's busking, he's kind of improvising, and at the same time he is directing the other members of the crew. Like He's getting Piper and Hazel to be like, oh look, they're being overcome by the madness of Dionysus. And he's kind of getting Frank to play along with the shape-shifting aspect of the plan. And I think it's just, it's a good way of showing that, like, for all the self-doubt that Percy has in these chapters, he is, like, a good leader. Absolutely. And this isn't something that he just learned at, like, Camp Half-Blood, right? He he picked up a lot of these skills from being at Camp Jupiter. Mm-hmm. The Dionysus trick, we do, we do have to go back to it. The quest for Buford, it's kind of just that again, right? <laughs> <laughs> but this time with people who actually know what Dionysus is like. Everyone is pretending to be Dionysus, or pretending that they're around Dionysus. Is Dionysus the most important god? I think Dionysus. I mean, Hercules wants to be on, friends with Dionysus. Yeah, on, on like a on a level of like the text, I think Dionysus might be the most important god, <laughs> and he, like he's given the most narrative importance in a lot of ways. Like he's, or at least the most narrative time. He's he's there a lot in those first five books. Mm-hmm. Talking about like uh, narrative importance, though, I think last episode we talked a bit about uh, Piper and Jason's relationship and mm-hmm. how that factored in sort of narrative and cosmic importance. We get a little bit more on that with uh, Chryseor in these chapters. Yeah, who is mad that he is a side character in Medusa's myth. Yeah, yeah. he. Everyone knows that Pegasus, like flew out of her neck when she died no one talks about the weird dolphin guy (laughs) he's not a dolphin guy he's the only one who's not a dolphin guy is he not a dolphin i thought he was like a dolphin guy but everyone else was like transformed into a dolphin oh i i don't know i thought it was just like he found some dolphin guys and decided to make them his crew oh that you know i think that's true yeah i was imagining him as a cool dolphin guy but i don't think he was no, he. I mean, I guess you wouldn't be able to tell because he's wearing that fucking helmet the whole time. Yeah, he could be a dolphin, but then I guess like the eye holes would be on the top because it's uh-huh. like facing upwards. Yeah, I. No, wait a second. I, I'm learning. I was curious, right, about like if there was any information on the wiki about Chrysaor, basically. Uh huh. Um, which is Stop not looking like, at the wiki. <laughs> I, I shouldn't look at the wiki. We literally banned this. Um, <laughs> first of all, apparently he he's mentioned in uh, Percy Jackson Greek, Percy Jackson's Greek Heroes, but also this is not the first time we've heard of Chrysaor. It isn't. 
The first time we apparently heard of Chrysler was in The Last Olympian. What the fuck? We heard about a son of Hermes named Gus who stole a pair of fuzzy dice from Chrysler's Honda Civic in 1988. The fuzzy dice were right. then put into the the fuzzy dice were then put into the big house attic. What the fuck? Wait, so that what means does... this means that Chrysler being a pirate is like a very recent career change. <laughs> He didn't find these guys like hundreds of years ago. He like he's been he's just been like a normal Greek man. He had a Honda Civic. His car got broken into and his life just spiraled out of control from there. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> we it's some this is why sometimes it is important for me to at least look at the wiki. <laughs> god, that that's so weird though cuz I assumed that Chrysler was like um uh, Narcissus, where he like been dead for a while and was now back because the doors of death are opened. But I guess he's just been hanging around this entire time. Yeah, I mean, I guess is he a mortal? Like, or is he? He might be a demigod, kind of, because he's Poseidon's I mean, he is, son. I think right? he says that he's a demigod, right? Yeah, he's a, he's the son of Poseidon. Yeah, and he was, and it was before Medusa was monstified. Yeah, so I, I guess demigods can be kind of immortal. Maybe it's that refreshing sea air. Or maybe those fuzzy dice gave him like, the gift of immortality. That's that's possible. Now he's trying to pirate them back so that he won't so he can stop <laughs> aging. I mean, I guess Pegasus doesn't age, right? Like Pegasus is still around. That's true. I think probably. I believe you, and I'm not going to check. I guess I don't know how horse aging works all i'm saying is that daedalus had to build like five fucking cylon bodies to download his consciousness into that is true but you know what it's for kids it's for kids and also it's funny to imagine that the dice made him immortal and like a kid stole them without realizing what they do and now he's fucked uh-huh uh-huh <laughs> percy's feeling some inadequacies but uh i i there's one thing that he isn't inadequate in, and that's uh, well, a couple of things, and one of them is amount of dreams per book. He he's he has two little naps in four chapters, and each one has a horrible nightmare. Do we do we want to go through these? Let's go through these. His first one is, I believe, is I believe the 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 twins and the mysterious woman. <laughs> Who could it be? The person whose name has been said out loud in the book several times. This, we, I guess, maybe it's mysterious to children. No, this is an editing error. This is this is <laughs> this like this is Auntie M's Garden Gnome Emporium level twist, but like stretched out over an entire book. Yeah, like okay. Like if there's, your child is literate, they'll figure this out. Yeah, there's a reason we talk about, like, part of the pitch of this podcast is that, uh, like, you know, I've read a lot, you've read a few, but we also each bring our own unique talents, and one of those is is that you uh, do work as a an editor. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I don't think, but I also don't think you necessarily need to have that specific skill set to identify <laughs> that this makes no fucking sense and someone should have probably caught this someone should have caught this this it's 
definitely like an editing thing that happened late like just before the book was due to start being printed yes absolutely and i uh, I, it, I assume it's just a thing of like it doesn't ruin the book or anything so everyone was like fuck it right like okay you you could go back and like finagle of like 10 paragraphs or whatever to fix it mm-hmm. but is it worth the effort probably not i mean who who has the time on their hands to complain about it us we do we do <laughs> we're 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 the professional complainers <laughs> uh, this is this is our first time seeing i mean i guess okay the funniest thing in the world would be if we get to like later on in the book and we're ma- made into assholes because this is not arachne <laughs> god i desperately hope that that's true actually that'd be incredibly funny it would be very good uh but this is our first time seeing her and she is she's presented at least as very like scary and primal yeah i was expecting that to be a bit more of a like i don't know kind of mischievous like weaver of fates and also threads and also webs kind of thing to her but no she just seems like a big fucking spider lady she's a big spider and i do respect that to be honest (laughs) you you respect Uh, big spider ladies I will certainly not say that I don't respect big spider ladies. I, I have a special place in my heart for them. And uh, also the the actual interesting thing about her as like a, a character uh, is that she has sort of this connection to one of the core ideas of the series and that she and which is, you know, the gods screw people over for no reason. Mm hmm. Arachne is like Arachne's like the original one of those. Yeah, you know, for all of <clears throat> for all of Athena's bitching about the Romans giving her a raw deal, uh, maybe maybe she should think about her own past and so other people who she may have done that to. Right, like Arachne. I don't want to be like, okay, Arachne did nothing wrong, but also Arachne <laughs> didn't really do anything wrong outside of the like very specific religious context here. <laughs> so what you're saying is that Arachne should have been an atheist and then problem solved. I mean, I guess so, right? She was punished for hubris. She was specifically punished for like being a bad like pagan or whatever. I don't know. Like she, <laughs> she, she was bad at doing Greek god stuff. There, there's a lot of sympathy to be had there, but none of that is really in the book so far. Yeah, I'm thinking, I'm hoping it is because we get, we get some similar stuff from Percy in these chapters, where he's like, "Man, this whole Western civilization, heart of the West, Olympians thing, sure does seem to just like make my life the most fucking miserable thing at any possible moment." <laughs> yes, he is like, "Oh, it really does seem like every event that has ever occurred in history around Greece and Rome has been, like." Let me, let me find the exact up. quote, because it's really good. It's it's very good. He wasn't sure if he was mad at Annabeth or his dream or the entire Greek-slash-Roman world that had endured and shaped human history for 5,000 years with one goal in mind, to make Percy Jackson's life suck as much as possible. <laughs> yeah. He's having true. some teen feelings. He is, he is. He's right, though. He is right. <laughs> his teen feelings are correct. Which is how you know it's fiction. Yes. No, speaking of, like, entirely fictional things, there's a lot of, like, good teenage communication happening here. <laughs> um, like, 
we again again to make the the comparisons to last episode and jason and piper that is a relationship where they both kind of have a difficult time expressing their feelings right mm-hmm. like that's sort of jason and piper's whole thing is that they are piper keeps secrets and kind of keeps her feelings down and jason is kind of bad at talking about feelings yeah jason is a stoic warrior man percy percy has that almost and then with annabeth but then it ends up going in a way that made me really happy Uh uh-huh Percy is incredibly concerned about Annabeth going out on this quest, right? He doesn't want her to do it. He thinks that she is putting herself in way too much danger. And he he especially does not feel like it's fair that he's just going to have to, like, sit there and know that she is going to be in danger and know that, like, he can't do anything about it, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this is the ultimate, like, this is the ultimate saying no to Mr. Ocean Man, Percy, um, <laughs> is when when Percy turns things around and does a little bit of empathy. He, 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 he looks at things from Annabeth's point of view, and he realizes that he has done a million Fate of the World quests where he's been in horrible danger without Annabeth and like left her to be scared sick on her own. And so also specifically can't... has spent six months doing that. <laughs> Yes. So, like, she probably won't be away for that long. He probably won't even have to go through that at all. Like, unless he, she dies. That, unless she dies. But why does she have to go through that? And it's not okay. And like, but it's not okay when he has to. And I really like that Percy questions himself about that because that is, that's a good message. I think that's just like that's teaching children empathy in a way. And it, I mean, it's just, it's one of those things that we have always liked about Percy is that he is a very empathetic character. He's good at putting himself in other people's shoes. Uh, but Absolutely. But al- also uh, will not hesitate to kind of kind of go, go slightly further than they might like if he thinks it's the right thing to do. Like, for example, going with Annabeth to the start of her quest. This is true. This is true. I don't know. I like Percy. Yeah, I yeah, Percy's really good. Like this is do we do we want to talk about sort of the how this quest kicks off? I I do want to talk about this. Please. I So they they go they go off on to this little cafe and Percy has this great line about where Annabeth is saying, "No, no, don't come with me. I need to do this by myself." And Percy's like, "Nope, my mom has always taught me that it's polite to walk my date to the door." She's just like, good line. I like the reminder of how close Percy and his mom are. Uh-huh. Uh, and then they go to this this nice little cafe. They get insulted for being uh, touristy Americans. In a very, just very funny scene. And then Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck show up. It's... Now, now Jane, we, we discovered previously that you, I think you don't know who... Uh... Uh, other actors are do you know who these two are i know who audrey hepburn is uh because i think she sang um moon river which uh has Uh. a much superior cover on fucking the bayonetta soundtrack Uh uh-huh is that right am i correct about this i think that's true yes no idea who gregory peck is (laughs) that's that's entirely fair uh they're both (laughs) actors and I 
I have to say that it... I don't... What's happening here? This is fan service for boomers. I guess so. <laughs> I guess... I, there's something in the... The imaginary. In the, like... You're right, in the the boomer imagination <laughs> about the idea of being in Italy, being on the side of a river, and then, like, two movie stars riding Vespas cross your path and have a little chat with you. That's <laughs> that's just, like... Rec- this is, like, like, a 60-somethings, like, wet dream. Not only that, it, it has the same energy as if Rick Ryden was like, uh, well, you know, uh, you know, kids, Lin-Manuel Miranda might be a demigod or something, it, but pitched it, it like a fucking 50-year-old. It does. It's incredibly strange, too. Like, there's no... <laughs> I mean, there is an explanation given here, right? There mm-hmm. is a... It is said that the reason this is happening is because... Uh, do we, we we explained to you this. This, this is the River Tiber... This is a type Tiberius, yeah, yeah. right? This is Tiberius uh, and uh, Rhea Silvia. Right, yeah, and Rhea Silvia. That they have sort of become Americafied because of because Rome has become Americanized, I guess. Um, and and Italy famously uh, stuck uh, next to a black hole, which keeps it fifty years behind the rest of the world. Right. Right. Yeah. This is just very silly. Like, this is just a silly scene. It feels very, uh, like, ephemeral, to use kind of a buzzword, I guess. Uh-huh. Like, it doesn't... They, they're they going on this, like, Love Actually style... Not Love Actually, what's the fucking movie? Uh, Before Sunset or whatever uh, style, like, romantic date through the city where they, like, stop and get some... Percy orders some pizza from, a lo- from just a local <laughs> restaurant and and like gets like coke with ice and is just a very obnoxious american tourist and the the waiter is like glaring at him the entire time the waiter is truly does not give a shit he the customer does not matter here <laughs> but you know what i support him absolutely absolutely and then these movie stars show up i have and... to imagine this is this is such a fucking surreal experience for percy like, you're sitting there, you're fretting about your girlfriend going on this suicide mission, you have a stomachache because the pizza was crap, and these, like, two fucking time-traveling people from the 1950s have just appeared and started talking to you. Oh, also, you have a headache because you've had no sleep because you keep having horrible nightmares whenever you lie down. And you've been on the ocean, <laughs> so you probably have scurvy, too. <laughs> There's no way that they're getting like. Pro- There's no way that seven teenagers on a shit on a magical ship that gives you whatever food you want are getting enough like vitamin C, right? Here is my theory: is that um, the whenever they get the Diet Coke uh, to tribute Dionysus, uh, it comes with a little slice of lemon in it, uh, and that <laughs> slice of lemon is giving them all their vitamin C. Oh God! But I I don't have a lot to say about it. But that sacrifice scene where they like burn the ship down and pour coke on it and whatever is, is very good. It's very good. It's very funny. I I enjoy that. Like they, at least a few of them are freaking out that they destroyed six million dollars worth of valuables. <laughs> uh huh. Which is a very pretty pretty reasonable reaction. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it probably wouldn't have been that much in the end anyway. You can't fence it like it's full value. That's true, it's true. I guess, though, that it is probably true 
that they're getting enough vitamin C. I, I hope, I hope so. Anyway, like maybe that's what Coach Hedge is there for. He yells at them to eat the lemons. He he will like eat the peels himself, but he will <laughs> force them to eat the remain. Can you eat lemon peel? I think you can. You can eat orange peel, and they're basically okay. the same thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> Do you reckon Rick's getting a kickback from the tourism board of Rome? Like probably, right? <laughs> like, I, the, the thing is, Rick Riordan loves Rome. Like Rick Riordan likes Italy a lot, so he's probably just like, like we know that he's learning Italian, or that he like knows some knows Italian. Oh yeah, and he wrote that Italian language story um, a couple of years ago. He wrote an Italian language story. He's doing his own translation of Dante's Inferno, I think. Oh Jesus. And also, <laughs> we, know, like we fun... know that he just he likes to go to a place to research for his books and then write a very luxuriating description of it. Like he did that for uh, Alaska and Son of Neptune. He did that for Alaska. I think if I remember, he did it for uh, Atlanta, I believe. Oh yeah. Um, he did it for Atlantis. <laughs> he, yeah, Rick Riordan is a person that loves. He loves just becoming in, like engrossed in the details of a place this is something we learned in uh for people who haven't listened to our trace navari episode about <laughs> the first trace navari book on our patreon Go oh listen yeah to that. uh he he spends so much of that book just like describing san antonio yeah no, yeah now that you mentioned it, i can definitely like i see that bleeding through in here especially because this is more more maybe more than any other place that we've been to in like Camp Hoffla Chronicles, but this is the same kind of like sun soaked, kind of very warm, very kind of I don't know. Very very multicultural, I guess. Because you've got all the like different periods of Roman history like mashed together. And yeah, also yeah, shitty American tourists ordering pizzas. Oh yes, yes. <laughs> now, if I was in Italy, I simply would not order the pizza because I know it wouldn't be as good. Yeah, yeah. You you get if some kind of pasta. Yeah, get well. Hmm. Yeah, I guess get the pasta. I I don't know what to order when you're in Italy. I guess probably like I was gonna say a baguette, but I think that's French. Uh, yeah, I guess get the pasta. Yeah, this but is... I feel like even they, their pasta probably isn't as good either. Their pizza isn't as good. This is actually a problem that I'm going to have to contend with at some point. Are you going to Italy? Uh, my my family organized a trip to Rome like a year ago, and it's been one of those things that I kind of like, I, I've known is on the periphery, but have kind of shunted off into, that's never happening probably. Oh, shit. But uh, a couple of months, that's coming up. So I guess I guess I can like verify whether Rick Ryder is bullshitting with all these descriptions or not. Are we going to have our Jane in Italy arc? <laughs> Okay, it's wait. Exciting. No, I need I need to take my microphone with me and record while we're there, just so that we can say that we did an episode in, where I'm in Rome. You do, yeah. <laughs> That's exciting. That's exciting. Yeah. Uh, I've also not been off this fucking island in over a decade, so I'm looking forward to it. Oh God, yeah. <laughs> I I want to get out of the country soon. Well, I'll meet you in Rome. How about that? That sounds good. We might be doing a trip to Italy at oh, some point. <laughs> But that that won't be for like a couple years yet, yeah. I don't think. So you probably you probably won't be there. Uh, it's it's a shame because if we met there, we could be the uh, random like uh, Roman war reenactors who Percy sees <laughs> who are fucking battling the police for some reason. <laughs> That's the coolest fucking thing I've ever heard of. I think the the the, the, o- the only based Roman cosplayers. Oh, absolutely! <laughs> these guys these guys know how to party. 
I have to imagine, this must just be like something that Rick Ryden saw while he was in Rome, because it's so weirdly specific. It's one of those things that is like beyond normal. Like, this is not <laughs> something you think of. I mean, I guess you're a writer, you can think of anything, but generally, this this feels like it was pulled straight from real life, you're right. Yeah, no, the, you, you, can, you can imagine like... Rick Ryden sees this, he moves very quickly on without asking any questions, and then just transposes Percy into that. Absolutely. What uh, else can we speak Speaking about? of poor communication, to go back to an earlier uh-huh. topic, the fucking... Everyone's splitting up to go and do their little missions and tasks in Rome, and Hazel is like, Frank, why don't you come with me? We'll walk around this wonderful romantic city together while we look for my brother. And he looks absolutely overjoyed. And then without missing a beat, Hazel is like, oh, and Leo, you should probably come too. (laughs) And he just looks devastated. (laughs) Hazel has to be doing this on purpose, right? (laughs) Because it it doesn't seem like she wants to be around Frank alone anymore. This is is the, the dark reading of this, which is like, she wants Leo there to put like a buffer between them. I they're breaking up after this book is over, right? They have their their relationship has been nothing but screaming at each other since they got together. And I I want to say that we're like like you said we're reading this cynically, but also there's not much else to read here. Yeah, like there's not. That's pretty much all we have of their relationship is that they've had a couple of like they've had some disagreements, and Leo's been there to kind of lighten the mood. It feels like she Hazel is gonna skedaddle after after this ends. All the nice bits of their relationship was while they were still friends, and it kind of seems like they should just go back to that, or possibly just Hazel should not interact with Frank again. Yeah, yeah. God, I I I want I want to love Frank because in these chapters he is very good, apart from being the weirdo boyfriend. Yes, like during during Percy's like big um, oh Dionysus is on the ship. And Frank, like, stands up, and it says that he that he sounds like he's reading off a teleprompter, and he's like, oh no, I am being turned into a dolphin. And then he turns into a dolphin. It's, it's just funny. It's it's very funny. Frank is Frank is consistently the funny, awkward boy. Exactly. Who does not, he, he also misses the beat. Like, he forgets that he has to come in and do it at first. <laughs> and then it's like, oh no, I, I, I'm, I'm a bit late, but yes, I am being turned into a crazy dolphin. <laughs> also he just I, the, the solution to his, his solution specifically to uh, what's his face being an expert sword fighter is to just turn into a bear and punch him yes yes absolutely like that is the beautiful like frank simplicity that we love frank could have recovered so many cool guy points if he had changed back into a human and said like parry this yes absolutely but then again, he would never be cool enough to say that. Also, I don't know if that's cool because I'm a dweeb. It's. I think it might be cool. I. I don't know that I can judge that either. <laughs> oh, we like stopped. One more thing about Arachne. It does it almost seem like I'm curious about just like keeping an eye out for this. Does it seem like she almost has leverage on Gaia? It does a little bit. Yeah, now that you mention it, it's like. Because she's getting afforded a lot more kind of, I don't know, a lot more autonomy than a lot of Gaia's other henchmen. Like, Phineas was just kind of a stooge who got straight up killed when it was convenient for Gaia. 
And meanwhile, for Arachne, Gaia is like, I will send two of my two of my strong sons to go and beg her to please, please don't kill Annabeth. Right. I wonder if I wonder if there's an extent to like Arachne. Like, does it have to do with her mythological importance as like what like so, or is it more to do with like I just I'm I'm curious why this is because Gaia, I don't know how anyone would get leverage over the earth uh really big stick you stick it in the earth and pull it <laughs> you know you're right that is one of the simple <laughs> tools that is that that is literally one of the most famous examples of leverage anyone has ever done i guess you're right <laughs> uh you know question answered fuck it uh, <laughs> uh I, i've said it before about the twins but i am really glad that even if it's like this that they do still have some sort of personality they are the first giants to do so yeah no they're the two stooges but it's better than just being a, a bawling moron which was what the last fucking four of them have been yeah like they i like i do enjoy their bit of like guys who can't stop dressing like each other and also <laughs> they both dress like vegas magicians I, I I feel like I, I this was this was 2011. I have I have to believe in my heart of hearts that like Rick drawing attention to their terrible sleeveless pirate shirts was a call out for Edward Cullen wearing that terrible sleeveless pirate shirt in Twilight. Ooh, probably so. I was imagining like Pin and Teller. I don't I don't know any of the names that you're saying, but that doesn't mean they're not real. Uh, I think that'll do it for us today, though. I agree. My only my only final note is um, the the incredible continuity that Rick Ryden has given us, with uh, Medusa's son also having her iconic accent, which is, and I quote, Middle Eastern. Oh God! How are they going to portray that in the movie? I, I I they just made her a white woman in the movie, didn't they? I think they still had the accent. I don't remember though. No, because I I I I remember her iconic quote. Um, I used to date your daddy. I think she just said that in, like, a weird New Jersey accent. No, I think you're right, yeah. Well, our intro and outro music is Super Mario by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. Our cover art is by Vera at Innsmouth underscore in on Twitter. We are hosted by the Moonshot Podcast Network. You can find them over at Moonshot Pods on Twitter and uh, Moonshot Network on Twitch. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash unwisegirls where you can find our links to our social medias our discord server all that good stuff um, updates visual companions etc you can support us by going to your uh podcast app of choice especially you know that that itunes shit leaving a five-star rating and review telling a friend about it or going to patreon.com slash unwise girls where for just a dollar a month you can get the discord role of camp counselor for three dollars a month you can get the discord role of friend of bacchus as well as all of our bonus content yep uh it, if you want to uh listen to us talking about the like the full the end of homestuck uh, that's what we'll be talking about next week so uh you join that tier now if you want to listen to that and if you want to listen to our previous episode which is me screaming about how Star vs. the Force of Evil is bad. Uh, sign up. Uh, and for $5 a month, you get the Discord role of Venus is Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every single episode. 
Speaking of which, this week we'd like to thank uh, Danny, Tanner, Mercy, Veronica, Friend, Bree, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And as we always say, at the end of every single episode... See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye. Bye. and their amazing friends, the Actual Play Podcast that steals. What does that mean? That means that we take stories from corporations and come back and tell our own fanfic-inspired actual plays with them. We do things like a Star Wars podcast that takes place 300 years after The Last Jedi. What if any Zoids media was good? We tell stories in those spaces that are better than the ones that the corporations tell us, because we're not fucking cowards. Please, come join us at Riley Hopkins and their amazing friends to hear a plethora of wonderful stories every once in a while on the Moonshot Podcast Network. Riley Hopkins and their amazing friends. Hosted by me, Riley Hopkins.